At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Hygiene. Hello, welcome to Oral Hygiene. It's a podcast where we look at educational films, experimental, caught films, and interesting documentaries. Uh, this is Matt, and today we're looking at a film that um, is my, I guess, adopted hometown of Athens, Georgia, with the uh, documentary Athens Inside Out. And we got a couple of the the players, I guess for going metaphysical, we'll call them players, even though it's a documentary. Uh, hello, Vanessa and Bob. Hey. Hello, Matt. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, of course, as a, um, I guess I'm going to call myself a muso a few years ago. Um, someone's checking out my apartment because they were moving in. And uh, it's an Australian lady walked in. She sees a synthesizer, three guitars in the small apartment. It's like, oh, you're a muso. And I'm like, is, is that an insult? I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Well, like, it could be. It is an expensive um, thing to do, I guess, if you own instruments. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing with guitars is always like, how many guitars do you need? Uh, one more. <laughs> Whatever the number is, one more. So, <laughs> But um, Vanessa, can I ask you to just sort of give the uh, TV guide synopsis of, of this documentary? Well, um, it's, it's a film really uh, kind of... Uh, homage to our uh, city of Athens, Georgia. It was filmed in um, 1986 and came out in 1987. And it includes performances uh, by a lot of bands who uh, became more well-known later, um, like uh, R.E.M., Love Tractor, um, Flat Duo Jets, um, The Squalls were in it. And my husband, Bob Hay, was in The Squalls. And uh, um, it also uh, visits some folk art, folk artists like uh, Howard Finster. Um, and so it, it's just really like love letter to the city. And, uh, you know, uh, for all of its flaws, I love it because there's some things in there that would um, have been forgotten or not known about, except uh, they were filmed like John C. Wright. Uh, the poet who we dearly love, he passed away, you know, several years back. Yeah, it's funny uh, with that clip at first, I was like, I, I don't know if I like this, right? And then the next day was just kept on reverberating through my head. So I was like, okay, I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, some, you know, it takes a, a few seconds sometimes. Um, I did spend, I, I was in Athens from about uh, 97 to 2004 as a student, and then like, a couple of years, I, I guess, as a proper townie, although I feel like if you, you've been a student, you can't be a proper townie. But <laughs> but uh, it was kind of interesting because, of course, we knew about the 80s scene and you could find R.E.M. albums, no problem. Um, but I, I remember hearing about, you know, Pylon and the Squaws and, and about Inside Out and really having trouble tracking that stuff down. Um, the way I first heard it was uh, working at the university radio station being like, Hey, wait a minute. All this stuff is in the archives. So I can actually listen to it now. And uh, 
you know, now it's way more accessible, which is awesome. So, yeah, we've been working our way toward that. Uh, Pawan had a um, box set come out uh, last year at the end of last year um, that uh, focused on the period of time between 1979 and 83 for Pawan. And um, also it shares uh, a lot of the things that we were interested in like art and uh, it was, it, you know, it was uh, great to get that to come out because our things had really been available um, widely for a long time. And right now, Bob is working on uh, getting his stuff together to reissue. Yeah, that's good because, uh, yeah, I, I got my hands on the pylon box and that's some fantastic stuff, especially, uh, I, I guess, Usually, I guess gyrates put out is the the real the amazing one, but I don't know. Chomp appeals to me, so <laughs> uh, it's I, I guess a little more gloss is uh sometimes good. But um, I, let's talk about how you folks entered the scene. You know, for me, I, I was always periphery around the scene. I guess I had fun, but uh, I I grew up in Doraville, you know, a suburb of Atlanta. And somehow I'd never even visited Athens until like my senior year of high school when we were visiting campuses and now you know that's like my work commute now i'm like how could i have never made it out there but uh yeah once i got out there i very much did the student scene and slowly got my hands into the more art scene which is, is always what i wanted but uh can you give us your your athens trip well i moved here in uh 78 or 77 i think it was 78 and i started got a job at this restaurant called the el dorado which uh was in and just before I got there, the B-52s, some of them worked there and they actually practiced in the back room of the restaurant, but they were they had just like taken off and moved to New York at that point. But there was other music going on. There was uh, just a few clubs that were playing, but uh, the 40 Watt Club was opened in what, 81? Yeah, I think it was 81. Yeah, 81. And that was like the first kind of new scene club in Athens. And uh, I've been playing music with a bunch of my friends. Uh, and slowly, certain people left and other people kind of coalesced and kind of coalesced into this group of six people. And, uh, and then I went to the 40 Watt Club and I saw the side effects there. And after a lot of practice and a lot of par playing at parties, then we got a gig at the 40 Watt Club and kept doing it. That yeah, a, that was a I've, I've been putting uh, together a timeline for his band. And I have uh, been cataloging some of his posters. So there's a poster from his very first show that wasn't a party. It was at the 40 Watt Club and it was... Uh, December 3rd, 1981. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was a smaller 40-watt club. A different location, was it? Right. Well, the Caledonia was there, if you know where that was. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, well, okay. I have trouble finding it now. I have, Last time I was actually in Athens, well, in America, was uh, 2010. So <laughs> it's kind of weird thinking of my mental maps and what's you know, correct and what's I, I've gotten lost over the years. So yeah, but, uh, things have changed over that time for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, 40 Watt has been like six locations 
Um, the first location was Curtis's loft, and it was a joke that uh, he and one of his friends called um, this loft that he had kind of taken over. And below that was um, where a lot of artists had studios. And Michael and I had a studio downstairs and upstairs. There was this big empty room and uh, maybe a dirty mattress on the floor. And there was a single ball hanging from the ceiling. And his friend, Bill Taper, jokingly called it um, a 40-watt club. And so uh, when they actually um, decided, um, Curtis and one of his friends, Paul Scales, that they could actually open a club, you know, we toured the Northeast and saw that it could actually be a shoestring operation, (laughs) that you mainly just needed the guts to do it. And uh, they opened uh, the first, like, club across um, College Square, at the corner of uh, College and Broad, where the Starbucks is now. But at the time, it was a sandwich shop downstairs. And um, upstairs became the 40 Watt Club. At that uh, time in Athens, everything, all, this, all the retail had just moved to the recently opened Georgia Square Mall. And so there was a lot of abandoned and empty buildings downtown. And a lot of them... I think some people were just squatting in them and some of them had like really cheap rents, like $50 a month or something for a studio. And that made it possible for the artists and musicians. Uh, you know, I think that was one of the catalysts behind the scene uh, was having um, these empty spaces and cheap rent. And uh, you could survive on, um, at that time on um, you know, a part-time job very inexpensive it's not like that now Uh, but it's still you know it's still quite wonderful down there Uh, you know it's concentrated Uh, but I moved here in 1973 to go to the University of Georgia Art School and when I graduated in 78 I hung around for a while because my first husband couldn't seem to get out of school he was Jimmy Ellison he was the bass player for the side effects later on but he had switched his major a bunch. And so uh, um, I didn't know, Michael and Randy were friends of mine, and I didn't know that they uh, were really starting a band. I mean, they kind of told me at parties and stuff, but, you know, it kind of, you know, went over my head. And so, uh, you know, on uh, Valentine's Day, 1979, they asked me to come and audition for the band. At this point, they already had a drummer. He was Curtis, their landlord. You'd heard him practicing. And uh, the whole idea was it was an art project. And I understood that completely um, because that was my degree was in studio art. Um, you have a, you make a project or you have a goal and uh, you do it, you know, you have a show or a presentation or a happening or whatever. And then you move on to the next thing. And that's what we all thought it was going to be. Their goal was initially just to get written up in New York Rocker. Um, but uh, we uh, continued on because we got a lot of uh, attention right from the get-go because of uh, people like Fred Schneider and his friend Robert Molnar, who would open the door for us in New York. Um, and so, you know, we continued to play and saw the scene develop in Athens. It was 
interesting. Yeah, I was interested just uh, seeing how different the scene what uh, changed by the time I got there uh, in the film. There's a mention. Oh, there's almost nowhere to play. Then there's there's no bars. And by the time I got there, I guess all that retail space had become bars. I, I think it was a. Uh, I, I never went in because that that's not my scene. But uh, I, I remember walking by Flanagan's at night and having there's like a fight like fifty percent of the time. <laughs> Pretty wild. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, I, actually, I, I really do want to ask um, my my hangout once I was 21 was actually the, the Manhattan. So uh, that, that was a uh, great place. Yeah. Good choice. Yeah. I, I, know, I, the, I, uh, the poet Coleman Bart still comes in there every night, you know, at the same time. And um, John Seabright used to hang out there, too. Um, the poet, they were all friends. It's a great place. It's still there. Uh, Living in Japan, one interesting thing is I, I know one of the things that Manhattan had was a drink called the Moscow Mule, which was kind of a rarity. And I, uh, it's, a, it's, just, it's just basically vodka and lime, but um, ginger ale. I come to Japan, it's like everywhere. So that kind of tripped me out that this little place in uh, Athens had this thing that's all over Japan. Yeah, I do remember the Caledonia now because that was a club where as a student with no money, you could basically stand outside the door and still like get pretty much the show so uh i i guess i, I stiffed them a few times sorry caledonia i just hung outside the door and listened to the show <laughs> well they unfortunately they went out of business over the pandemic yeah i know so many pl places have um japan there's of course been a lot of places closed but uh I, I, it doesn't seem to be like quite the the impact in america there's still a lot of like smaller restaurants and businesses and i don't know how fleeced is it looking in athens now well yeah it was it's starting to open up very slowly. Uh, I don't think there's any. Like the clubs, I think are going to be opening up. Uh, I heard a rumor of the 40 Watt would be opening up in August, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Georgia Theater did this well. We've both got allergies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do, <laughs> the too. The grass so is horrible just, here right now. Yeah, I'm just um, um, lucky today. I think about a month ago, I was getting super hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, um, I've, I've seen the ebb, ebb and tide, and it's, uh, it's always changed. Uh, the, you know, the impact on a younger band, though, has got to be uh, difficult. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, musicians, I mean, even up to, like, classical-level musicians are like, what are we doing now? Because there's just nothing to perform. I, I did see a, a friend, actually one of the co-hosts on this show uh post that uh cine is at least running again so that was kind of nice to see they have like a pop-up drive-in or something so you know people find their ways here and there well uh, yeah i think a lot of places have really had their takeout business explode i mean there's a there's a traffic jam every day around noon and five o'clock we're around the chick-fil-a that's <laughs> in our neighborhood i mean it's just the cars are backed up you just want to avoid that area. Oh yeah, but you know, and uh, but a lot of people are uh, curbside pickup, and uh, the city allowed some of the restaurants uh, and clubs downtown, like Flickr, to expand over the sidewalk into the street with barricades and put tables and uh, you know pop up tents out there, and so uh, uh, that's helped them. You know, uh, you can maintain social distance and be outside and uh, yell at your friends, you know. 
Yeah, that was one of the pluses in uh, Japan. I, I've repeated this in several episodes of this podcast, but except for Tokyo, everyone already like socially distanced to begin with. That's just how people live. So, <laughs> you know, people all keep their own space anyway. And that kept us from having to go completely bonkers, I guess, uh, over the past year. So that's kind of nice. Right. And that's refreshing because most of your citizens probably believe in science, I would suspect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we they, have a lot of uh, people who are into conspiracy theories and whatnot here. And uh, that's had an impact on people willing to get um, the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. It's just, although they're rolling out very slowly in Japan and, uh, I think I laid it out. It's one, because the bureaucracy here is ridiculous. That could be it. Two, it might be the pharmaceutical companies want to make their own because that is something they do in Japan. Or three, you could go take the conspiracy theory and go, they know, but that's probably not the right one. <laughs> um, right. I just, I recently finished a book, um, the, the No Encores book, where the author went out to ask um, he wanted to ask bands about their or artists about their best gig and their worst gig. And he quickly realized nobody remembered their best gig. So the stories are all just like, <laughs> like the strangest, the strangest shows um, or, you know, the ones that had a train wreck um, that I used to play shows. And uh, I guess for me, it would be a, it was playing in Athens upstairs. Can't even remember the name of the place, but they were like play for three hours. So we played every song we had played every cover we had. We started improvising and it, some point a bunch of frat girls come up and just at sorority girls come up and ask between songs are you guys like a band like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we were playing here for three hours what do you think we're doing <laughs> but uh yeah I'd, I'd love to hear about just that that totally bizarro gig because those usually make for fun stories especially for touring musicians so <laughs> and uh maybe maybe vanessa uh, i'll get the ball rolling if, if you got a good uh you know, interesting. Oh, uh, like some um, strange shows. Well, there's a lot of uh, funny things that happen along the way. Um, you know, be, you know, I toured before cell phones and, uh, you know, before the personal computer. So we carried a, um, a Rolodex and uh, our bass player kept up with all the business information on uh, he would, you know, put the contact information for the club on a card. He ran the door, um, the sound man's name if they knew it, you know, uh, the closest uh, good restaurant to get something to eat that wasn't too expensive. You know, information we found out along the way if we were returning. But, uh, um, you know, there's just a lot of I'm trying to trying to think of something that, well, you know, like in the early days, I remember we drove all the way to Burlington, Vermont, and we get to the club and there's a janitor there sweeping the floor, you know, from whatever havoc had been wreaked the night before. And uh, uh, we said, we're Pylon, uh, where do we set up? And he said, oh, and he pulled out a poster off the wall and he said, Pylon aren't playing tonight. The pinheads are. <laughs> and at first we were, you know, major league bummed. But then uh, we went, yay, we get a night off. So uh, Michael called up the Hotel Iroquois that we usually stayed at. And, uh, and sure enough, they had our favorite room opened. And uh, we 
went and stayed there and went out that night and uh, hung out with some of our friends, uh, like in the Gang of Four or whatever. You know, that, uh, what is that movie where they turn everything up to 11 on the ants? Spinal Tap? Yeah, Spinal Tap. There are a lot of things I recognize in there that didn't exactly happen, but, you know, um, it's kind of like, you know, it's like I heard, almost every scene in the movie before I actually saw it, but you know, like the tunnel under the stage and then you come out somewhere else. So, well, I could see where that would really happen because I've had those things um, back in those days and uh, the larger clubs in um, New York, your dressing room would be like on the third floor. And then um, you would follow the sky through these uh, various like, tunnels almost and uh then you would end up uh coming up backstage like climbing up a ladder through a hole <laughs> yeah, what was that that danceteria that was weird that was another one yeah um uh you know we were pretty lucky in that we didn't have too many you know really whacked out bad things happen um most of the things that happened just ended up uh becoming a good story. Uh, one night, Pylon, uh, were about to cross the border into Canada. We were opening for the Gang of Four, and we're staying at one of those holiday inns that looks like it has about 300 rooms. All of the halls are identical. The rooms are identical. And we got there, and it's like, let's go to Hugo and uh, Jolien's room and hang out with them. They said they were going to watch... Uh, um, I believe they were watching, um, well, it doesn't matter. It was some uh, great guitarist. Anyway, we went there and hung out. And Curtis and I, who was the drummer, all of a sudden we realized that we were just the only ones from the band. And um, we probably needed to get out of there and go to our room. So uh, <clears throat> we walked down the hall. We get to the room and then we look at each other. It's like, do you have a key? No. Do you have a key? No. And uh, so we knocked and knocked and knocked and uh, nobody would answer. And so we were like, well, I guess, you know, we'll go back to Hugo's room and maybe he'll let us sleep on the floor or something. And as we nearly got there, there was a door that was open and we looked and there was John King, the lead singer for the Gang of Four, stretched out on a bed, <clears throat> asleep, obviously passed out, you know, still wearing a suit from on stage. And we're like, oh, my goodness. John loves us. We'll go in here. And, you know, he won't mind if we sleep on the other bed. So Curtis and I climbed into the other bed turned off all the light, shut the door, locked it. Well, around 6.30 in the morning, you know, as the gray light filtered through the window, there was this guy that was leaning over us, and he was going, can I say a bad word? Yeah, go for it. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> <laughs> it turned out it wasn't John King. It was just a guy that looked a little bit like him. And <laughs> we were suit. like whoa and so we were like oh my gosh and was like you need to get out of here and so we 
scampered on down the hall and knocked on the door. And this time Spotty let us into our room. So that's one of the stranger things that ever happened. How about you, Bob? You have any war stories? Uh, well, there was, once in Madison, Wisconsin, this was kind of, I mean, this is like a bad thing. You remember the bad stuff. So we play the set and the show ends. And our drummer, he was like in this little alcove thing. And for some reason, he like wanted to jump up and cheer. And when he did, he like hit his head on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> and real, you know, really hard. Like, oh no, he's a really tall guy too. Yeah, and I don't know. Probably the worst thing that ever happened was the uh, in in Boston during the winter time. Our van got we were parked outside the club, and our van got impounded by the city, and that was quite an ordeal to go get that back from the the yard where they kept, I mean, I remember there was like all these like Doberman dogs in this junkyard. And it, it was, was probably place. off of a wharf right next to, next to the ocean or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. We got broken into a few times. Um, well, we never got broken into, uh, we never really had never broke down either or, you know, had an accident or anything, which is pretty amazing because we've logged a lot of miles. You know, I like to call Boston the city I've been to but never seen. I've only been there once, and uh, I saw a concert, ate some food, but it was so foggy you couldn't see more than about uh, you know twenty meters ahead that day. So it's like I never saw the city, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a great music town. It really is. It was one of my favorite places to play. Um, we played probably one of the funnest gigs we ever played. It turned out uh, for some reason our uh, release party for gyrate was in boston and the bill was the gang of four pylon and mission of burma <clears throat> there's some people that still say in boston that was the best show they ever saw yeah yeah really yeah that would have been one thing to see so uh because I, I actually did manage to see gang of four when they had the original lineup reform so that was nice but uh you know there's something about time and place that you know you can't you can never quite replicate. Um, I, I think they seem to be going a little more disco at that point in time, which was kind of cool. So I appreciated that. But uh, just a little, yeah. more, a little more groove. Um, Bob, I think I saw you're from Maine originally. Well, I'm originally from Michigan, but yeah, I lived in Maine for two years. Okay. I was just curious. We were talking Boston. I actually, uh, I, I taught like outdoor science near Saco, Maine for a while and Actually, half my family lives in Maine, too. So, huh. <laughs> Her brother lives up there. My brother lives in Maine. In Presque Isle. Yeah. That's a drive. 17 <laughs> miles from the Canadian border. It's at the very top of Maine. Oh, yeah, that's way north. I, my, my aunt lived in uh, Greenville for years, which I think is in the center of the state. But that's even like, that's way past that. that yeah, way north woods for that one. <laughs> Yeah, we, my brother said uh, he heard where we were and we were planning on continuing to drive. And he said, you need to stop, get a hotel room because it's moose mating season. And in July and August, he said, and uh, I looked it up online for, you know, the main transportation board and the moose are larger than like a Toyota pickup truck. They can do some serious damage. 
So we, we decided to spend the night. It was us and our two girls. We were going up to see my brother and my mom was up there at that point. And uh, we found a place uh, that we thought was a pie place, but it was really pizza. We wanted to have blueberry pie. Well, it turned out it was on the menu. When the waiter heard where we were going, he said, say goodbye to civilization. <laughs> <laughs> And it was true. <laughs> uh, we 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 went probably about an hour at one point without um, seeing another vehicle on the road. How about the interstate? And the interstate. It was the interstate. Yeah, I do Amazing. remember having to stop and wait for Moose to cross. Actually, both there. Oh no, it's Buffalo and Wyoming. Yeah, I've had multiple times I had to wait for large animals to cross the road. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, oh, geez. In Maine, I lived in way in the south in Kennebunk. Kennebunkport. Well, Kennebunk. And Kennebunk. Okay. Technically, I mean, I lived contiguous with Kennebunkport, but technically, the river was the border. I think I was just north of you when I was there. I think that uh, that's just south yeah. of Stocko, if I remember. Stocko? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful area. They have the Rachel, Rachel Carson Nature Preserve and a really cool monastery. And uh, we looked around. That was one of the things holding us up. It was so beautiful. Yeah, I, I made a little, at least half an attempt to live there a little more permanently, but somehow ended up permanently in Japan instead. But that's cool. <laughs> I hear <laughs> I hear Japan is quite beautiful. What's your favorite thing there? Um honestly, like so I have I have a full-time work schedule, right? And and I couldn't do this in uh Atlanta, definitely I could not. But um so I'm doing a podcast with you this morning. When I finish, I'm going to actually leave early so I can kind of walk through rice fields to the next train station, probably listen to a podcast or something. Uh I'll go to work. Uh, during my lunch break, I can go hang out at like a temple or something. That That's something I definitely missed coming back to um, America for a while was uh, random temples. You can't just stroll into a church, you know. <laughs> But temples, you can just kind of, you know, they got the grounds, they got maybe some stonework and stuff. So um, I, you just kind of lose yourself in the landscape. Um, I barely drive anymore. I drive on, I'm a Sunday driver, like quite literally now. That's the on, on, pretty much the only day I ever drive a car, if that. So I, I really like the fact that I can just, um, you know, I don't need stuff. <laughs> I, I could live without the car pretty easily, but it's nice for you know, uh, going up a mountain and seeing something relatively easily, but, uh, that, and I guess, I guess it's, it's weird. It's a small country and it's known for not having much space, but you basically get your space. You walk into a store, uh, there, there is no, may I help you? They might scream welcome when you walk in, but then they're not going to bother you unless you ask for help. So, um, I, I guess I'm going to say personal space is a really nice thing in Japan. <laughs> Yes, and um, the music is very interesting, too, the music scene. You know, a long time ago, we were friends with the band called The Plastics. We met them through the B-52s. They were super interesting. And then we've had a, um, a band uh, that is uh, friends with Jason E. Smith. Uh, I'm trying to think of what they're called right now. I'm terrible with names. <laughs> I don't know. 
how I end up being a singer and having to remember lyrics and stuff because you know, I'm more of a visual person. Well, um, um, as as my crutch, I'll, I'll ask if you ever did this. Did you find yourself uh, making up new lyrics or just singing gibberish on stage? Um, I would. Uh, I I only did gibberish a few times. Uh, I would make up uh, different ones or sometimes repeat what i remembered you know just make it work use what you have yeah my, my thought was uh in a club especially it's like eh, they can't make out the words anyway as long as the melody's there it should be solid for this particular performance so <laughs> people never know unless you go oh my god i messed up you know <laughs> exactly I, I i actually put on <laughs> I just watched an old show that's actually on video. And I, when I was like, Hey, I can play that guitar line and sing. Really? Okay, cool. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was surprised how much of the lyrics actually were comprehensible for that particular show. Cause I assumed I just was like, you know, speaking in tongues the whole time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Performance is my favorite part of uh, music, you know, being involved in the performance and um, something that's, um, if, if I can get to the place where I completely forget about myself and become uh, part of the music, that's just like the best thing in the world. I mean, it's addictive. I mean, that literally is the best thing in the world. That's that's the zone. That's, uh, you know, when time breaks down. Yeah, because <laughs> that moment's as shorter as long as you need it to be, basically. I mean, it's going to pass, of course, but uh, I, I find myself at the beginning of work week, I'm like, oh, I'm going back to work already. I'm like, yeah, but then I'll be not working pretty soon as well. And I find ways to, uh, I don't want to say entertain myself, but use time for myself as well. So uh, I, I think that's important for me. Yeah, performing always, like, I guess it was fun, but maybe stressed me out a little bit. I guess it's maybe because I was playing and singing. <laughs> Bob, you were playing and singing. How, how do you feel yeah. about that? <laughs> Some people can do that and some people can't, you know. Yeah, yeah when our girls were learning guitar, their teacher uh, made a point of trying to have them sing and play at the same time from the get-go. Yeah, and my, my if thing... If you don't know that you can't do it, you know, it's no big deal. No, I finally got where I could do it. So I was like, okay, now I'm going to play a few songs on bass on stage and sing, which is a whole nother can of worms, but... uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I played some bass. The squalls we used to switch around instruments a couple times during the show. And some songs I had I played bass on, and some of them I could sing on, but other ones I couldn't just because the rhythm was the way, different. Yeah, if the rhythm's different, then you can't really sing, you know. It's the patting your belly and rubbing your head at the same time thing. Yeah. <laughs> now one thing yeah, I, can't, I can't do that. Uh, I guess to take that, what's what do you like about Japan personal space thing? Um, you know, I still record music just mostly on my own or I'll have, you know, old musician friends in America, like add some parts and we'll do it online. So technology helps there. And I, I've been gravitating towards the iPad. Um, I'm, you know, I'm on my vocal mic now. Uh, this <laughs> that's why I'm holding it the whole time. But, um, you know, um, uh, I can just record on the iPad now. I don't even need a mic and it sounds okay. And, and the thing I really like is I can go out to the middle of a rice field at midnight and record vocals there. So uh, sometimes it's like, oh, 
why did you add the birds in the song? It's like, I didn't add the birds in the song. That's just, that's where I recorded it. <laughs> yeah. A field recording. What uh, software do you use to record on just the straight, iPad? Just straight up GarageBand. Um, Cause uh, you can turn on the mic. I'll do it on GarageBand. Now I'm not, you know, I'll take those files, send them to my computer. I'll work on them on like a proper, like, you know, digital workstation or whatever and put them together. But yeah, most of my recording, my wife's been teleworking the past year. I can't really sing in the house so much anymore. So, but rice field never cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're helping the rice grow. Your uh, hope. <laughs> or, or killing it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm sure you're helping it grow. I mean, that, yeah, that, that's another nice thing. Uh, I guess uh, something that is, it's very difficult to do in America. Cause when I lived in, the states you know you're in your air-conditioned apartment it doesn't matter what kind time of year it is but um no one has central air here I, i've got like a wall unit if i need it but i, I rarely use it basically I, I got a fan here but um yeah when it's summer plan on sweating and being a little hot when it's winter uh it's gonna you're you're gonna be cold <laughs> but uh, at the same time as i'm walking through these rice fields you know i the cycles are very clear like whatever time of year it's very clear what they're going to look like because they have to uh at one point you're drain them and then flood them. And then the rice grows to a certain point. And uh, then at nighttime, you know, I actually know where the stars are at any particular time of year now, which is kind of cool. So um, I, I don't know. I, Athens, if you take a walk outside, I guess you could, uh, you could definitely acclimatize yourself to cycles more in Athens than you could in Atlanta. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. We live, uh, uh, on the outskirts of Athens, so it's fairly dark out here, and you can see stars, um, but uh, um, it's not like uh, some um, place maybe to the south of us that has truly dark skies. Yeah, I remember because uh, I did live downtown Athens one year. It was um, it used to be a furniture warehouse and they converted it into these like little townhouses. I lived there for a year, but, and I had a car, but I uh, couldn't get a spot at the courthouse. I, I had a friend with an apartment on the other side of downtown and it drove me nuts. I had to walk a mile to get to my car, but now I'm like, that's fantastic. I'm kind of glad I had to walk a mile to get to my car. <laughs> Good exercise. Yeah. 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 Just, uh, walk. I think walking is extremely important. So, uh, and then I went from, yeah, I actually, when I, last time I left America, I was quite large, to be honest. So, uh, you know, living in Japan has let me sort of like get a bit, little bit more of a balance, I guess. So, of course, there's great sights and things to see, too. Well, you know, beautiful scenery, which maybe is what you're asking about. But it just brings me to the, you know, state of mind thing is kind of important. But uh, in Athens, definitely is a good place for a state of mind. You know, I, I caught that vibe. <laughs> And, and, you know, that kind of takes us full circle around to the, uh, the movie Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. Um, that was what was going on at the time. It was a certain time and place that had a certain state of mind um, that uh, um, just effortlessly, you know, we self-invented at the time. It just depended on who was there. Well, it's the idea of uh, sort of creating your own culture because, you know, if you if you get into if you really buy into something like uh, I ask my I teach students here in uh, junior high, high schoolers, whenever you ask them about music, they're like, what do you like? Oh, J-pop. What else? 
J-pop. It's like just J-pop. Yeah, speaking of just like America, there is some absolutely fantastic music in Japan and there's a whole lot of terrible music. So I, I came to Japan thinking it was going to be a musical mecca, right? I, I DJed for WUOG and the the um albums we got from Japan were always like fantastic. And it's like, oh, we mm -hmm. just got the good stuff. <laughs> There's plenty of crap you can listen to as well. <laughs> well, that's true Every, everywhere, I think. Uh, you know, commercial radio, um, you know, as opposed to uh, free form. I have an app, and sometimes when I'm bored, which isn't really that often, I'm pretty good at amusing myself or I always have a project going. Um, but it's called uh, Radio Garden. And you can tune in to radio stations all over the earth, including, you know, China and Russia and, uh, you know, other countries you wouldn't think of. So to listen to pop music and, um, you know, Afghanistan or, you know, uh, New Zealand or whatever is, is fascinating. Yeah, I've taken a trip to Morocco and definitely the, the radios coming out of the stores and out of people's cars and the music, you know, is very different, you know, because European radio was pre pretty similar, but the Moroccan stuff was just like completely different. Um, I, I guess one musical difference in Japan, um, which you'll find even with some of these more experimental bands, is they learn their instruments like really technically proficiently if someone says i know how to play guitar they're probably quite technical about it now on the bad side of that if they're a punk band that means they're playing like technically precise punk which there's a place for that but you know uh, wildly bashing your instruments is, is kind of fun sometimes as well so <laughs> um and, and then i play in orchestras and I, I played actually with the athens city orchestra for several years and i, I well until covid i played with one here and I found that the Japanese orchestra, we were way more precise. Like everyone had, I, I'm a string player. Everyone had their bows and going in the same motion, everything very precise. But sometimes it didn't have the fire of, a, of an American orchestra performance. Yeah, just sometimes. Well, trade off, you know. Um, yeah, you know, perfectly imperfect. You know, there's something has some life to it, something that's just um, human. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And there's so much like, cause it's like, um, chanto, that's the, that's the Japanese word for doing it correctly. So, you know, if you're playing your instrument, you need to play it chanto, don't get weird. Whereas the Athens scenes in particular, the whole point is to get weird with your instruments. <laughs> So it's a, it's a different frame of mind, which makes different sounding stuff. Right. It's a different culture, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, we have that here, though. They're professional musicians that, uh, you know, that's how they make or they made their bread and butter in the studio. And uh, they don't want to have, you know, the engineer and producer don't want to have a uh, everybody redoing everything 40 times because, uh, you know, the guy on the bass can't get syncopated or whatever, you know, he's off a little. Yeah. So I, they're, they're probably a little more like, like a, a scalpel doing that work 
with music here. Actually, you know what? The best the best metaphor is actually uh, ramen shops. A lot of signs for ramen shops, so they'll, they'll have a picture of the chef. So, and, and we know Japan is, is all the cute characters, right? It's like, I mean, they have like a cute COVID character. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. So, um, but the ramen shops, they'll often have a maybe a drawing of the the ramen chef, and he just looks like completely pissed off. He looks real angry. I'm like, why is why why does the ramen chef always look angry and I was like, oh, it's because he's serious. He's serious about making the ramen. So, you know, it's going to be good. That's that's the message that's supposed to come through. He's so serious about this ramen. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, yeah. That's uh, legendary there that people will travel miles and miles to find the perfect ramen. Is that correct? It's sort of like barbecue here. Yeah, I've, I've waited in an hour line of a place. Just actually, um, sometimes you'll just there's a few times where the worse the place looks, sometimes the better it is. <laughs> so there's been a few times where it's like, oh, that looks like a CD dump, but there's a big line. I'm going to get in that line and have the ramen there. So <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> usually you do find it's quite good in that case. And, and yeah, chain store is not going to be the same thing. Um, my favorite's actually, it's, it's basically a shack in the countryside. If you know my neighbor Totoro, it looks like that valley and it's just this little ramen shock and it's uh fantastic <laughs> they make oh, wonderful that is one thing of food food's definitely good here um the idea of a bad restaurant barely exists because if it really is bad it's not going to stay in business and uh i i know unless it's a front for something yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well here it's um the mom and pa stores where it's like, no one ever goes in and out of there. How do they stay in business? So, <laughs> <laughs> although it is, it is a, you know, relatively known secret that most of these businesses, especially in big cities, do, you know, do have regular visits from the mob. But the weird thing about the Japanese mob is they kind of keep everyone else from doing horrible things. So it's in a weird way. I mean, they certainly do horrible things, but <laughs> pretty much no one else does so it's, it's kind of kind of cool in that way i guess so it's sort of like um well the jungle uh if you don't have a certain predator you know the other you know like if you don't have the wolf or the um owl or whatever the rabbits and mice are going to get out of control you know yeah and and i, I in atlanta and doraville certainly I, I wouldn't go around at midnight you know, walking around, especially with like a nice telecaster on my back because I'm going to one of those uh, rice fields. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get the, I get that jacked. <laughs> so, but um, uh, we'll wind down before too long. But are there any other things about this this movie? Something that maybe people just wouldn't, or the scene that just isn't obvious on the surface. That you know, that looking back now, you can just say, "Wow, that was so fantastic!" Because then. The movie itself is footage from the early 80 to late 80s, right? So, you know, it's, there's been a little more time to look back on that scene. And is there there's something kind of missing or something under the surface? Um, you mean with as far as the culture then and uh, now? Yeah, what it you was. Know, looking... You know, living in it, you can never quite, you know, hindsight is, you know, perfect vision, right? <laughs> I think the fact that it was so inexpensive um, and... Uh, also, the particular people that were here, I'm just going to say that, you know, it kind of grew out of um, two places. 
the UGA art school and um, some people from the music school and then others from the El Dorado restaurant, like he brings up um, here. Um, you had a, um, some, one thing that you had uh, at the parties back then. Um, now, I'm really getting too old to go to parties, but I have been to a few. And it was like just a, such a slice of uh, just across all socioeconomic boundaries. You had the artists, you had the townspeople, you had the musicians, um, you had the waitresses and um, the, um, you know, just everybody was at these parties, you know. And uh, now it seems, uh, you know, a little bit more generic. Um, it seems like there are a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to diss anybody, but, you know, it seems like some of the newer bands are more like um, alt country or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Which I love. I mean, you know, I listened to Graham Parsons when I was in college, but um, I don't know too many songs about feelings. <laughs> yeah, I've I've actually adopted that sort of a gang of four idea of lyrics for. Um, I, I I don't know if you. I, I just sent like my Athens um, time album your way, which was just it's all breakup songs. But now it's like. I have nothing resembling a love song. In fact, I have my Australian friend who lives in Tokyo do the lyrics on purpose. I don't write them. And he just writes like surreal poetry. And like, and then I have to find a way to fit that into a melody. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> but yeah, subject. I, I, I don't want to hear another love song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to, you know, have one every now and then. I guess it's all right. But, you know, it's, it's nice. Uh, those, you know, those boundaries were broken down by bands like the B-52s and Talking Heads and Gang of Four and, you know, yes, Pylon. Um, Absolutely, Pylon. And um, uh, post-punk bands, you know, uh, just so many. And then some of the younger bands I, I really enjoy, like Sleater Kenny and Deer Hunter, as an example. Um Oh, here, I, this is, I, I actually went on an internet search to try and figure this out. Um, who did, who opened, do you know who, did you open for Deer Hunter at a Halloween show in 2008? Yes, we did. Um, okay, that was I, one of the last shows that uh, Pylon um, proper played. Okay. I, it was, I, 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 you know, don't. It's almost embarrassing, but I was like, was it Love Tractor or Pylon I saw there? I mean, I really loved it either way, but I just couldn't quite remember <laughs> who I saw. <laughs> but okay, glad to clear up. That, that was a fantastic night. My dad and, uh, too. <laughs> Were you at that show at the Variety Playhouse? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, trying. Oh, I was dressed. I this is a fun story. I was uh, in the restroom at some point. Getting in line, it was Halloween, and I had put on like black bad ears and a cloak and like a red kind of some kind of thing i you know got a, a costume shop and uh there was a guy next to me dressed as batman so i just got into an argument with him about who was batman so that was fun <laughs> <laughs> me, me, me obviously being wrong but uh <laughs> that was half the fun so and, and that was fun um my wife is japanese and we lived in the states for two years that's that's when we saw that show the first show we took her to is my my friend's punk band at the bottom of the claremont lounge <laughs> oh wow i've still haven't i never went there 
one of our friends I showed I up. missed it. Yeah, one of our friends showed up and she's wearing <laughs> a, she is on a mo- moped, right? But she's going and wearing a helmet, right? She kept, just kept the moped helmet on. And we're like, why is she doing that? You know, 30 minutes later, it's just beer bottles flying everywhere. And it was literally like some insane 80s punk movie. You know, the thing you're like, that concert doesn't happen in real life. So so my wife thinks that's what all concerts are like in America. So it took me a little bit to convince her to go see another show, which which was that um, show with uh, Pylon and Deer Hunter. So. <laughs> Yeah, that was a, a, a fun show. Okay. Gl- glad to make it because I really did think it was, but I'm just like, uh, not 100%. I got to ask. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, I, I do remember just when I first got to Athens, uh, lo- for some reason you could find Love Tractor at the time, but you couldn't find Pylon because we were, we were looking for, you know, trying to find the, the bands of the scene that had been the, there a few years earlier. So. Uh, again, that's why that, that pylon box is, is absolutely awesome. And, and the squaws are coming soon, is it? Uh, pretty soon. Things move pretty slowly, but in you know, a record business. But Oh, and um, Sierra, I'll, come, I'll give you just one completely pointless question. Uh, in the movie, is, uh, you're playing a guitar. Is that a Vox 12-string, or do you remember? Yeah, I still have it. Okay, it's cool. A, uh, it's a tight skull. Uh-huh. And it, well, there's two similar models. One's called a May Queen and one's called, and this one was called Apollo. Okay. And yeah. It's just a hollow body kind of. It's shaped like a palette. Cheap guitar. Yeah. 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 I definitely, uh, you know, I'm always hitting the uh, Japanese, not thrift stores or they're called, actually the name of the store is quite horrible. It's called the hard off. There's a hard off and the book off for used stuff. So, but the hard offs uh, usually have an interesting variety of guitars coming through. So it's, it's hard not to go look sometimes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, Randy got into Tysco's pretty early, you know, it was just like something, it was the guitar that he picked up at a pawn shop for almost nothing back then. And he just liked the way it looked. And so we were in New York and uh, playing at someplace like the Ritz and the plastics were there. And Randy said, I'm going to find out what they know about this guitar because this is before the Internet. And he hadn't been able to find out very much at all other than it was made uh, in Japan. And so um, he laid it out and they all gathered around and looked at the guitar and they went, oh, Tysco. Very rare guitar. And what ended up, uh, the story about that is, is it was uh, mainly made and shipped away to be sold. Yeah, when Japan doesn't really like used stuff, they, um, if you get people move into new houses, you'll tear down the old house and build a new one. You don't, you know, like the, whoever lived there before, their spirit's there, so they rebuild it. But um, as such, they don't love used stuff. The plus being especially Japanese-made guitars, uh, when they are secondhand, they're just, they're still dirt cheap here for the most part, which is kind of cool. You can, um, I think I, I picked up, like, it was like a Fernandez that, like, Sonic Youth used, and it was like, just like 50 bucks or something, and I Used it on four or five songs, decided I, I hate locking tremolos and sold it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be able to make a profit shipping it back to the US because it's so expensive to ship a guitar, you know. It is, yeah. And uh yeah, I actually just I guess it's a, a just an air music thing, but uh I 
my first trip to Japan was was um, funded by me selling my my twelve string rick. So a little bit of regret not having that anymore, but eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But that, that was a sacrifice. You got to make a sacrifice. That that was a sacrifice. So so it's cool, I guess. Um, we probably need to wrap up, but uh, this is act- I'm actually catching you on a notable year for Inside Out as well. Am I? Is this some kind of anniversary? Well, um, they're actually making another one. They're making a follow-up, and it should be out this year. And um, they've got some of the newer bands uh, are in there, and they have um, my band even gets to be in it, uh, Pylon Reenactment Society, um, that I form for fun, you know, I don't know how long has it been now five or six years ago um and um we actually had started writing new material kind of in the spirit of pylon uh when we got shut down by the pandemic right right so yeah it's for me i just her- i could hermeticize more but i i'm already uh a bit i guess a lone wolf musician um you know even the guy I make music with is not a musician at all. He can't even sing. He doesn't play an instrument. But uh, yeah, just I let him make some lyrics, take some pictures, make some videos, you know, use some vision. So he's still it, like very important for the creative process, though he's not a musician. But it would be nice just to you know jam out with people every once in a while, too. So <laughs> right. well, maybe once the pandemic's over, we can do all that again. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, I guess it'll be back to the orchestra. But hey, I'd like to go back to the orchestra as well. That was my yeah. most recent live music playing. So, uh, and I just gotten back into it. So it's kind of a bummer. Oh, <laughs> what did you play in the orchestra? Um, I've been a cellist since the early '90s. Now, on the plus side, they uh, I, I didn't play for 11 years. Director called me and was like, "Hey, you want to come back?" And at first I was, like, oh, "I haven't played," but it's like, "Here, we'll hand you a cello." So they handed me. I think it's made in China, but it's a pretty nice one. It's definitely nicer than other ones I played. And no one's come back for it yet. So I, actually, I've uh, used the pandemic to, you know, become quite good because playing in orchestra, you show up at practice, you kind of grind through. And now I have to play by myself, and I actually had to like learn to get good. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it'd be fun when you get to go back. Exactly. But uh, no, for me, actually, the one is the, I don't don't know how much classical, you know, but the uh, the Bach cello suites uh, is the the nice one for a cellist. And you can't screw up a note in it (laughs) because there's nothing else there. It's it's like organ music, right? But it's on a monophonic instrument. So they make you play a few chords, which if you, the strings are curved. So you just have to like wrap around. It's, it's crazy. So, uh, but again, it's it's that's meditation, isn't it? That's getting in that zone when you when you all those notes are firing. That's the whole point of doing it. That's why people call any kind of music that is does that transcendent music, right? So, and uh, I love the cello myself. Though um, it really gets me right here. Um, and I wondered why, and then I read that of all the string instruments, is probably the closest to the human voice. I've heard that. And um, I, I know it's the, uh, I think it's the Dvorak cello concerto is the one that I think where that people started saying that because the way he writes and that, it really sounds like someone's singing. Um, and I can't play that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have to work on it. That's right. Yeah. Do they uh, know what I mean if I say woodshed? 
time. Yeah, I think uh, I've had lots of woodshed time. And um, recently, I, I don't know if I should be doing this, but I've taken to, you know, midnight guitar sessions on my, my front porch with headphones. Uh, people shouldn't be able to hear me too much. But uh, <laughs> so if nothing else, I, I should be upping. I, I think a lot of us, if we're using our time reasonably, should be upping our skills in this uh, period of time, you know, make it worthwhile. Um, my 2020 actually was pretty nice in the end. Uh, the worst thing I could say is I didn't get to go to orchestra practice really. And did you have uh, remote learning only for two months? Uh, Japan actually started this thing a little bit earlier than everyone else. Uh, they closed the schools at the end of February. Although people kept coming to our school for some reason, that was weird. And then April, yeah, everyone stayed home, but we kept going to work. <laughs> I never, I never stayed. I never stayed home from work. Um, and then May and June, we did Zoom. But I haven't used Zoom for my company since June of last year. It's been a year since I used Zoom. A few of the other teachers do. But um, yeah, yeah, it's relatively back to normal. You know, just students and teachers are wearing masks. That's about it. <laughs> but uh, we, we never quite got the numbers out here in Nagano either. So, yeah. Um, before we... And at the, did you have a website or anything that people could check out? Um, well, for Pylon, it's uh, pylon, P-Y-L-O-N dot band. Um, that is the easiest place. And Pylon Reenactment Society is pylonreenactmentsociety.com. How about you, Bob? Uh, well, we have a Facebook page. I used to have a more extensive website, but I kind of took it down when these record deals started coming through to see what happens there. So there's not really much up there. There's a little bit at squalls.bandcamp.com. There's our first EP is available. Yeah. Even I've learned a lesson that be careful what, what you sign your music to. Cause I, I got a, one I did several years ago, probably one of my favorite one albums I've recorded. And, uh, you know, to get it distributed, if I put it into this podcast, I'll get a like cease and desist letter, <laughs> which is a, a big bummer, <laughs> but they let me keep it on yeah. Bandcamp. I guess that's nice. So, yeah. So, but you know, at this point I'm like, this is for fun, isn't it? If anything else comes of it, that's great. But it's, it's, a, it's therapy, you know, making music therapy. If I went two months without, creating something I, i'd start to like get a little unhinged i think yeah i think uh, the artists and musicians are just wired like that exactly I, I noticed i hadn't been doing photography recently i'm like well i've been podcasting a lot so i guess that's just where my creative juices have uh drifted over towards so well <laughs> but, we look forward to hearing this podcast in japan we hope everyone likes it i'd like to say hello to everyone there and it was so nice to get to talk to you, Matt. Nice to talk to you. Great getting both of you online, too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, it's just the, such a cool documentary that sometimes I know people listen to the show and, and don't watch whatever the, the homework is. And they, they don't have to sometimes. Some, there's been a few times we told you not to watch the film in question, uh, a few of the highway safety films in particular. Um, <laughs> But everyone should watch Athens Inside Out and, and probably, the, and, well, not probably, they should watch the follow-up because I, I thought it was just a anniversary release and I'm like, oh, new movie, that's awesome. So I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm not going to give out any information about it, you know, really. But uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. It's different. It's a different 
It kind of shows how Athens has evolved <coughs> or, you know, what has happened over all the years and how things have changed. And for me, having a nice, ten, not nice, but having a 10-year disconnect, uh, that'll be quite fascinating for me, you know? I, I was um, just holding back a little bit so I didn't just keep asking questions like, hey, is the grid still open, you know? But uh, now that I have, is the grid still open? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, you good. You can that... uh, get take out and eat out. They close the street outside of it. The street between the grid and the bottle works, they close that finally. Okay. And right. they have tables, and so you can eat outside. And and Wuck Street's Wuck Street still got to be there, right? Yeah. Can't get Wuck Street's there. Yo Yo stuff is there. I don't know. What else do you wonder about? <laughs> I think school kids was out of business before I left, unfortunately. So I shouldn't ask about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kurtwood has a record booth over at um, the Lexington Vintage Mall. And uh, he, he was known for being on WOGs, um, like during when the new music was starting to happen. Um, he was like uh, the head student over there for WOG. And then later on, he was in the Woggles. Um, but uh, he rem you might remember him from the taco stand, too. Anyway, he All has right. a record store. Um, okay, that's cool. Kurt's, Kurt's Records. Knowing there's still some <laughs> record stores is very nice to uh, hear, basically. So, and yeah, WOG, yeah. I just, um, I, I felt like that was how I got into the, even playing bands. I was like, that that was the, my real toe into the scene because I got a year where I regularly got to do the uh, Blank Generation Who Put the Bomb shows, which that was just absolutely fun. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's been great talking. I, I actually do have to get ready for work. So, <laughs> uh, right. I think. You'll, I'll be sending y'all a link probably eh, around, um, it'll probably be about July 10th, I think, looking at the calendar here. And, uh, okay. All right. And I got That's to great. Legit y'all. In Japan, you know, I have foreign coworkers and I, I've scrapped most of what was left of a Southern accent, but y'all still comes out. And if I say Southern, it comes out Southern. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a good one. <laughs> Did you advance the film strip? Are you on the final page? Well done.